I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to you 2 Why. This is the story of a band told via the record sleeve. And who better to bring us through this journey than a person intrinsically linked to this design process who was in the room. I'm talking about Steve Averill, known to some as Steve Rapid. I am Gareth Anton Averill, and my name is no coincidence. I am Steve's son. Why, you two, why? In recent years, I became fascinated by the idea of this creative collaboration enduring for such a long time and perhaps how rare or unique a relationship that Steve had with U2. Steve's four and a half decades working with U2 as both designer and art director is remarkable in itself. And not to mention the fact that Steve often served a a sort of a guru role, with the band often seeking Steve's advice and input, most famously, of course, with the very name itself. It was Steve who put that letter and that number together in essence, an icon, in the literal sense of the word, in terms of it being a symbol or a logo, its two-character utilitarian nature has led to it becoming a design monolith carried somewhat reluctantly by the band throughout their career, an icon that has become iconic. I'm also deeply curious about process and detail, and I recognised an opportunity to talk with my father about his time with you 2 and tell his story. And so U2Y was born. I see this as being one of the longest running creative relationships in music history, if not any creative or cultural history or industry. And I believe this is worth exploring and celebrating. Though Steve officially retired from full-time graphic design in 2015, he remains as engaged and active as ever, with an undying interest in the rock and roll record sleeve. And speaking of record sleeves, what's also quite interesting is the evolution of the design process itself from a technical point of view, going from working on sleeves with artboards, letter set, all things practical, manual, 
the pre-digital age, the pre-computer age, and then transitioning into the computer age. The story begins in 1977 with the cultural explosion that was punk, much, much more than a four-letter word. Steve had founded and was fronting Ireland's first punk band, The Radiators From Space. This caught the attention and respect of a young Adam Clayton, and it's here that we will begin this story. This is U2Y, episode one. I suppose we, the word punk wasn't really in proper usage. It hadn't come as a term into regular u- usage until uh, London and the Clash and, uh, and the Damned and the, and the Pistols and all those, all those bands came along. So we, we were, I was trying to form a band um, that was um, related to the music that I was listening to. I loved the Velvet Underground, the New York Dolls, the MC5, the Flaming Groovies and people like that. And I want, nobody was playing anything like that. So I said about, you know, could I form a band knowing that I had no musical ability, but could I be the singer or could I be the instigator or the guru or whatever role would, would fall to me at the end of the day. So I was working in a, in a record shop called Golden Discs in Liffey Street. Um, and I was doing the ordering for them um, of the kind of psychedelic, um, interesting records that were around. So I worked there every Saturday and I had this idea, okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye on people coming in. If somebody comes in the door who I think has got the look um, and goes and checks out the record sections and checks out some of the records that I, that I think are strong, um, I'll approach them. And um, as, as it turned out, about a week after I'd made that decision, Pete Holiday came in and um, I thought he looked great. And uh, he went over and he was, I was playing Roxy music at the time and he was picking out, you know, sim- a similar kind of music. So I just went up to him and said to him, would you like to join a band? And he said, yeah. And um he did, and we started with Pete, and then a little after that, I met Billy Morley, and likewise, Billy had a great look, and uh, I knew he was interested in similar music, so Billy joined. So it was me, Billy, and Pete were the were were the initial band, and we 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 decided to call ourselves um, Greta Garbage and the Trash Cans in a kind of glam rock kind of. Uh, Andy Warhol aesthetic or whatever. It was kind of like weird. And then after a while, Billy Morley decided to leave. Uh, so we were stuck. It was just me and Pete then. And we had, we put an ad in and we got a few people answered to it. But the person that struck us the most was this, this kind of wiry kid with a gold tooth who turned up on a Honda 50, put putting his way out to Port Marnock and uh, came in, sat down at the table, talked about the kind of music he liked um, and he had very broad musical tastes and um, he played us two songs one I can also remember called Trash Can Alley Cats and uh, and, and he brought two friends of his that he'd met Mark Megaray and Jimmy Crash into the band and suddenly we had a five piece working 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 band Well I think hearing you talk about the origins of the Radiators from Space is interesting and relevant because of the fact that you talk about spotting Pete because of his look and how you describe Philip coming down the road and his his scooter, his motorbike. 
um, that you were, you know, uh, your your consciousness of the look was there at an early stage and how important that was to, to you even before you you get to the the actual music making part of it which is probably not dissimilar to how a lot of bands were formed i think in that era yeah. uh, you know that were the have a go hero side to it and the wanting to dress up and escapism was possibly a thing that that kind of feeds into that and i guess looking forward to the future and your graphic design career and art direction career that it's all tied into this idea and this concept of how the band looks, how they feel to the audience beyond how they sound, but still connected to how they sound and maybe tapping into something bigger. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, Pete, Philip and myself, we always had that aesthetic that, you know, we would go to rehearsal dressed as if we were playing a gig. Um, it was very important to us because everybody we love, Roxy Bowie, uh, T-Rex, New York Dolls, uh, MC5, had a, a, a visual aesthetic. Um, and we kind of knew that the music would, would, would come along. And the funny thing was yes. that if you look at any of the very early band photographs, uh, I took all the pictures um, because we couldn't afford a photographer or didn't know one that was kind of handy. So I used my trusty camera on a tripod with a timer. And um, there's quite a few pictures in those sessions where I didn't quite make it back in time in, in front of the band too. But I would, I, would, I would set them up, tell them how to stand, tell them how to look and leave a space where I would rush into it when, when the picture was coming up. So that's why people find it a bit odd sometimes when mm. they see a picture of the radios and they see me credited as the photographer. But um, that's what I did. You know, there was a photograph done in my bedroom in Port Marnock, which was used for the early publicity, where where I was running back and forth between the camera and setting it up and getting people to move and look the right way and then and then moving into it. But it, it was, it, it, we, we knew the band had something, but, you know, we just didn't know. The Probably the biggest problem with the band was that we never had what you might call a solid managerial presence um that somebody that can, could advise us in the right way um because we knew what we wanted to do we we knew how visually how musically we wanted to progress but we didn't have a manager that sort of backed it up in the same way that you two had paul mcginnis well the arc of the radiators from space and their story is so culturally fascinating in itself yeah. it's great to to talk about that again maybe some other time but in terms of its relevance to the u2 story your time with the radiators was actually relatively short. I think it came came in un, under a year almost. Um, and aside from being the thing that leads you to leads Adam to you, I think what I can see is you realizing that your role in that band during your tenure there and also afterwards was m- more than let's say musical or as a contributing band member, it was something bigger than that. Maybe again, it was a guru, advisory, um, you know, aesthetic, uh, conductor, photographer, whatever it may be. It was about pa- kind of packaging it all up and 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 selling it. Even even on stage, you know how how you guys were presenting the shows. I'm I I understand you had a a big passion for. Maybe if you could speak a bit about that experience of evolving from shouting vocals to to graphics, logos, um, posters and design and aesthetics 
and maybe how you found a weakness in your vocal contributions but then found strength in that other kind of role all my life um the idea of being in a band was fundamentally so important to me and it strikes a lot of people as very very strange that when we actually got the opportunity to go into the studio and record an album after the uh, first uh, single was was released um halfway through the sessions um i could see that new songs that philip and pete were writing were going to really need a different vocalist all the, and, and i didn't really have a great um what's the word, I strengthen my own vocals. I didn't believe in them in, in, in many ways. I thought they were certainly um, worked in early punk uh, era um, as a sort of shouter. And from and, and the funny thing was I, I once had a conversation with Bob Geldof a long time ago um, where he he was walk, he met me one lunchtime and had a chat and he said to me that, you know, you're not a great singer, but you're a great frontman. Um and, and that's what I tried to be. I tried to bring something different to being a frontman. To me, it was like performance art rather than mm-hmm. being a, a great singer. That's what I tried to do. I tried every performance we did in the early days. I tried to bring do something different on a show mm-hmm. uh, in many, many ways uh, to do it. It was, it was performance art kind, kind of experience. Mm-hmm. But during the, during the making of the album, I just felt that I didn't want to be fired by the band. Um, so I sat with Philip and Pete one evening. And I said, look, guys, I think... And Philip was actually quite shocked and 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 um kind of talked to me about it and then realized what i was saying was, was was very true because he you know he he had sang television screen he sang a couple of his own songs pete was coming along with the singing and i was doing some lead vocals some backing vocals because initially when we went in i recorded pretty well all the lead vocals uh, for the album and then when i made that decision they went in and they and pete and philip redid some of the vocals as uh, with them as lead singers, um, and it was agreed then I would that I would appear on the album cover um, because I'd been so much involved in it, and um, I would be credited as 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 a singer. But I in Daily Man Park, the gig in Daily Man Park with with the um, Graham Parker and Thin Lizzy and and uh, Farewell mm. Convention was the last gig I did at that time fronting the band. I think there's quite a lot of modesty in there, or or lack of ego to be a front man front person and step back from that position uh recognizing your you know your fallacies and i think your contributions to the radiators vocally are, are were, were were so valuable and, and and remain celebrated to this day and not just your vocal contribution but your energy so it seemed though you were you were maybe not as comfortable you know you're happy to be the guru but to for you to have slipped into a very backward, you know, a very backseat kind of role may not have been too comfortable for you. When the band moved to London, uh, I, uh, Chiswick Records asked me would I come over with them for the first few weeks and essentially tour manage the band, um, which was uh, an experience enough for me to realise I didn't want to tour manage a band because <laughs> getting them out of bed in the morning and getting going out with the gigs and, and setting up the gear and doing the whole thing. It takes a very particular kind of soul to be able to do that yeah so it was it wasn't that wasn't my 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 role so after three weeks or so i i i, I went back to dublin maybe if i'm being our armchair psychologist here maybe you said well if i can't be on the cover i'm going to design the covers so in a way you're still on the cover <laughs> yes of course So maybe whilst this chapter of the Radiators was about to close and 
No longer would you be smashing Telecasters through the television screen. Uh, the radiators were, were going to kick out open another door for you and would be the catalyst for your meeting with Adam Clayton. Basically, what happened was um, my my younger brother, Mark, was in the same year as Adam and some of the other guys in, in U2. And one evening he said to me, he came home and he said, um, there's a guy in my class who wants to talk to you about being in the radiators. He's really, really interested in, in, in what you can tell him. And that turned out to be Adam Clayton. So I said, fine, you know, and I, and I was living in Port Marnock and Adam came over a number of times from Malahide and uh, sort of we had long, long chats about what I thought they could do and what, where I thought they could go and how I thought that they, that what they should avoid and, and how they should look after their music. And um, I, I mean, even though I've never really been given the recognition, one thing that I sat down with the entire band and to Adam especially, I said, I really think you guys should be co-credited with the writing. I said, I've seen so many bands uh, split up because one guy is writing all the material or crediting himself with all mm. the material and is getting you know a lot more money than the rest of the band and it causes friction. And I said, my attitude is, and it's an argument I had later with Philip, was that... that that song, as recorded by that band, is a band recording, and and everybody should be credited in that in that way. Um, whereas a lot of people feel that the guy who came up with the initial idea is the person who is credited with with the song. So there are two different viewpoints, and I can see the the, the, the benefits of both sides. But I did firmly put that on them. And and in fairness, in the early days, nearly all the songs are credited to you two, or sometimes you two stroke Bono, whoever wrote the lyrics or whatever, um, mm. because they have they have a very unique sense of of a band that is very much them and i think it's very important that that happens but and um, they're still together so maybe that advice stuck home or ma- made some kind of sense in, in well something has clearly worked for them and i think that to tie it back at that concept back into what we're talking about they are you know as iconic as a f- as a four-piece band as they are uh, in individuals yeah. in a way of course you have you know bono and Edge are more upfront, shall we say. They have their pet yeah. names or whatever you want to call them. But it is kind of hard to imagine you two not as a sum of four quadrants and the, the symbiosis combined with the synergy of, of that combination. I think that concept of the four of them will also come back up in, in later conversations that we'll have about how they are represented visually on record sleeves and how separating them out with photography and things um, became a technique that you would use. So moving on, it's clear that Adam had great respect for you and the radiators from space and he saw you as somebody who could perhaps bring some wisdom or, or guidance to uh, you know the young band he was in at the time. And we could talk about that and we could also talk about how you your for, your your first official job was not to design a poster or sleeve or anything graphic it was to find them a new name basically yes all the early conversations were about uh the direction they were going in not about graphics or anything like that, mm. that but yeah how did we get to where we were and how did we you know because he looked up the fact that we were had this charting single and that we were considered you know written about in the english magazine so we talked about all those um it did come to a point where he said to me well, look you know um can you come up with a name and uh, there's a there's a there's a myth out there to see i've read various times that i came up with a a, a list of sort of 15 or 10 10 to 15 names yeah. and so here's a list of names you know what do you think and um 
even Bono has repeated. And that's mm-hmm. strictly not true because what I did was, I, I, he, Adam said to me, I, we would like, really like a name, something like XTC. Uh, that means nothing and everything kind of thing. So I went away and thought about that. And then I thought about, yeah. you know, things that were around me. They suddenly discovered like the Everready, the, the Everready battery, which, which was the biggest selling battery around the time was the Everready U2. My Sony yeah. tape deck was a Sony U2. Uh, my, the um, spy plane I knew about. I knew about German submarines called U2. So, mm. And I also knew the expression U2. Everybody says, oh, have a good day, U2. And, uh, but predominantly, I knew that like XTC, if you put this on a poster, it can be huge. And any language is just, it's just a letter and a numeral. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's visually can be quite strong. Whereas if you have, you know, you know me by the trail of the dead or something like that, it's going to appear quite small on a poster because it's, you know, if you're paying a big tour. Well, that's a particularly interesting point considering it seems as though you never indulged in that capacity to make the name super big on many of the releases, if if really any yeah. of the releases. I'm sure it was more of a thing that fed into the marketing side. And then even on their debut record, their name is almost invisible. Well, I think there's a great mysterious thing that happens with a name for a band because the band makes the music which justifies the name. You know, it, 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 I keep using the wor- words like synergy and, and symbiosis, but everything kind of has to work th- together and a band has to like rise to a name or has to pull the name down to them and it become galvanized and coherent. Like it's a very mysterious thing. But I think ultimately you, you have this interesting argument that like a band becomes inextri- you know, intrinsically linked or inextricably linked to their name and it would be impossible to imagine any other band with with that name or that band with any other name. But there's something about U2 that I find fascinating because it's, because it's so utilitarian. It's a letter and a number and we'll say that time and time again. But it's, it's linked vi- not only visually and aesthetically but it's kind of it's kind of almost spiritual in a way. But it's easy to say all this with forty plus years of that name being so deeply rooted and galvanized. Let's go back and remind ourselves that the name wasn't hugely popular with the band at the time, maybe. Yeah. You know, Bono wasn't happy with the name and probably would have changed it or at some point. And then they did this talent contest down in Limerick and they won as you two. But I said the hype was the name of David Bowie's band. Hype is a bad word in, in the music industry. So, you know, mm. it's probably good to change it. But the fact that they won the competition and got in the Evening Herald and other papers as you two, they kind of went. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
involved with it. When you presented the name U2, did you do a sketch of a logo? Did you present it in any kind of graphical way? No, I sim- I, sim- I, s- I simply put a list um, a list of names. And then and, and to, to finish what I was saying earlier, this was a list of names I'd written in a book. I, I was continually writing names that struck me if I came across a movie or a book or something that, that the name was quite good. I'd write them in a the book. So I simply took took 10 names from that book and, and added them to you too and said, look, this is the one that I think is the solution to what you asked me to do. Here's some other ones. The Blazers was one and uh, the, I think the Flying Leathernecks mm-hmm. were again movies uh, around. Uh, funnily enough, the Blazers uh, the, actually turned out to be a band from East L.A., who played sort of Los Lobos type call the Blazers? So I didn't think it was a bad name. I just thought they were your fiery rock and roll, rock and roll. Well, I, th- I think all su- all successful bands, even the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, they're all kind of like song titles or puns or whatever. Mm. They they grew into that. I mean, people have said to me since you two could not be anything else but you two, mm. B- because it means an awful lot to their fans and to their music, and 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 people can interpret in the way that that, that they want to interpret. So if not point of view both graphically and as a sort of simple name it kind of worked well most definitely it's probably one of the most effective uses of a band name and logo of all time and that's i think why we're having these conversations so i would say bono has a particular aversion to the and you too part of the name and quite likes the utilitarian side of it as we've heard him recently kind of renounced the name and yeah. he tends to refer to the band as the U2 or the U2 group, which again is leaning more heavily into the utilitarian side of things. Was there ever any intention or discussion about it being the U2? No, it was never the never the U2. It was always U2. And equally, it was never U-2 as appeared on certain press ads and things like that with the hyphen in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I guess in that situation, going back to that, idea of the utilitarian nature of the name it probably the the hyphen itself probably kind of just you know added to the utilitarian nature and and the press or whatever publications were probably just taking some poetic license i guess or graphic license or graphical license which actually in my mind kind of just serves to enforce the fact that the name wasn't tied into the oh and you two have a good day at you two that you said earlier on that it is strictly strictly a letter and a numeral it's utilitarian it's in the vein of XTC with the spy plane yeah so I just like to briefly look backwards and kind of trace the origins of your your interest in design and I, I can see that it's very clear that, that that really exploded for you at a very early age and, and perhaps your story and your journey through your early kind of working experience in graphic design is is interesting in itself and maybe we'll hold that off for, for its own kind of discussion but it's clear that you had access to something very unique that likely became fuel for your for your fire and that was access to records and magazines and culture that wasn't available in what was quite a culturally repressed Dublin in Ireland back in the 60s well i, I suppose fundamental to that was the fact that um uh, 
dad was an airline pilot and uh, as such was flying from Dublin to New York on a regular basis. So I was frequently sending him off to all, he used to go down, send him down to Bleaker Bob's in, in the lower end of, 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 of New York um, to get magazines and books and things like that. So, you know, he was able to get cream and rock scene. And uh, at one point I even sent him down to Andy Warhol's factory to get a back issue of interview magazine, which might be quite funny because he, he, he told me he often used to sort of go down these places in his uniform, um, <laughs> which I thought was... was that a, is quite the mental image. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's why I had access to a, a lot of the magazines that you just normally wouldn't have seen uh, available on, in, in Dublin or in Ireland in any, any place. And amongst some of the most interesting things we found in your archive are, first of all, there's these huge boxes, basically like scrapbook boxes of, you know, one box will say Velvet Underground, one will say Roxy Music, one will say Stooges, and it's just every press clipping that you could find cut out, you know, sometimes assembled into a little artboard yourself. So it seems like there was obviously an early obsession, perhaps, there with the graphical side of music or rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, I probably my personality has a certain amount of obsessiveness in it. So when I became interested in a particular band or particular uh, type of music, I would re- write and read about it in quite a, an obsessive way to sort of get deep into it as I could. Or custom, custom tape sleeves or custom seven inch sleeves that you've made yourself with sticky tape and letter set and pens and pens and paper and markers when you have that sort of graphic spirit inside you you like to sort of put covers on everything and or do something i mean it started off and probably in the late 60s when occasionally a single would come out and it would just come out in a plain white cover and you you'd know that in certain territories there was an actual pick sleeve or whatever and you'd end up making one out of cardboard and cutting pictures out of magazines and, and letter setting the title or whatever it was just um part of the experience of what i wanted to do from you know an early time from 12 or whatever that i the idea of combining the the elements of of graphics and um music was re- really the main thrust of of where i wanted to go and what i was doing well i can also see that your obsession never really went away given how many stickers there are for your bands on plugs and bits and pieces of equipment you obviously still love the the branding exercise and how about this slide from hobby into career path well i i kind of knew from a very early age that this is what i wanted to do um trying to find i mean it was very difficult because the only person i knew um who did sleeve design in ireland uh to any degree of sophistication was jim fitzpatrick um and Jim was a very stylized designer. He's he's still making great artwork, but it you know it, his his work with Thin Lizzy is kind of iconic in in so many ways, um, in different ways. Because um, Jim was an illustrator and and a painter, which I wasn't. I was a graphic designer. I didn't have great uh, illustration skills, but maybe if I had developed them earlier on. But once you get into once you got into advertising, you quickly learned that you know that you're, that's not your job. They would call in an illustrator or a photographer or whoever was needed to complete a piece of artwork. You can up with the idea so that's really what what my inspiration was come up with the ideas for these things so that leads me on to then the idea of steve rapid and the art of the pseudonym you've used different monikers in the various stages and aspects of your career um steve rapid being the most present which you still use um rapid exteriors or x um 
amongst others, used for your sleeve design. Uh, maybe you could speak a bit about your interest in creating personas, perhaps, and, and the usage of these names, including the origins of Steve Rapid. It actually, where it actually came from, when I was writing for um, Heat magazine. So for a while, I called myself Rapidograph, um, which is obviously a pedograph um, made into into a word. So I, and then when when it came to the band, we all sat down and said, let's let's give ourselves a name. Philip was already calling himself Philip Chevron at this point, mm-hmm. so I just said, I'm going to be Steve Rapid, and uh, we said, what well, we're going to call Pete, and we initially called him uh, Peter Jet Holiday. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then we spelled it in a sort of French way. And then Mark mm. said he was going to be Mark Megaray. And because Jimmy was the drummer, we called him, because of the symbols, we called him Jimmy Crash. Um, and I kind of said, look, in my experience of working with the bands, if you change your first name, people can be talking to you and the people, the person won't even respond to it. So keep your, your, your real first name so mm. that if you, somebody asks you a question, you'll know they're talking mm. to you, you know. Unless you're Bono and the Edge, but you know we'll get. Yes, to that. of course. Well, okay, so it, but you but you were you were rapid exteriors. Yeah, well, that was because I was working in the advertising agency, and I didn't want to uh, give away. I couldn't really sort of. I wanted to just keep these. These were supposed to be side. They, I mean, they were often done in the evenings at home, uh, working that way. It wasn't that I was sitting in in, in work time doing these covers when I should have been doing real work because the real work was pretty busy. But they were done in the evenings. But I wanted to sort of use pseudonyms. So art on my sleeve, rapid exteriors. They were names that I used at the time to to uh to to do covers and to do various pieces for, with and for which which is interesting you know that the fact that you were kind of retaining some sort of anonymity in a way even though you know these aren't huge records or anything but even on the on the back of u23 you're you are art on this on my sleeve and maybe actually there's just something playful about that do you have any any f- further thoughts on on that motivation one of my all-time favorite designers is Barney Bubbles. And I actually really like the fact that in a lot of the covers that Barney did, he didn't put his name on them. That, you know, the fact that he'd done them was enough for him. It wasn't a big ego trip for him. And I and I kind of liked that idea. I mean, certainly when, when in later years, when, when, when we uh, had the post Radiators band, the electronic band. We basically changed the name of the band every week. I kind of came up with a new mm. logo and, and and did it. It it's it is a kind of like hiding behind something, but at the same time, just not wanting to sort of be up there saying I do everything, I, I do this, yeah. I do that, I do I do the other. You kind of want to bury yourself in a little bit into it. And I like sure. the idea of using it using a, a name like 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 that. So that's what happened. And essentially, it was just simply to avoid the fact that I was I was employed and working in an advertising agency. One thing I've heard you speaking about. And is probably well well covered at this stage um, is the fact that Adam Clayton was the driving force in the earlier days with Bono being a little bit maybe shyer or more more backseat. Uh, although Bono is known largely as the frontman of U two, in my uh, encounters with the band in the beginning. Adam was the the mover and shaker. Adam was the one that was doing the management, chasing gigs, doing the whole thing. And I knew Edge because um, my parents uh, knew Edge's parents, so I knew Edge and I knew Dick, his brother. Um, and I met them both with Adam and 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 uh, uh, I didn't meet Bono till, till I think I went to a first rehearsal um, out, mm-hmm. maybe in Mount Temple. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I went to. They asked me to go to rehearsal. And I went to see them, and initially the the person that impressed me most in U2 was Larry was a solid I thought was a pretty solid drummer and Edge was not a bad guitar player Bono was kind of shy and hiding and you, you talked about people being in a band and how people changed I remember being in Island Records um, 
around the time of the album cover and uh, one of the executives in there who, who I won't name or I probably can't remember who it was, he said to me, oh, you know, what we're going to do here is we're going to get rid of the bass player and get a new bass player in, in instead of him. Mm. Uh, I just looked at him and said, you have no idea about how that band works, you know. Mm. And it struck me again how record companies can 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 destroy a band by not understanding the balance that goes on between the band because every band has a dynamic that works or doesn't work. And, and you know, it's important to to maintain that as much as possible. Absolutely. And this just further galvanizes your point from earlier about the equal share publishing contracts and, you know, decisions being shared and just being a four, a four way split on, on, on all things due to creative or, or business, I guess. So you obviously encountered people trying to maybe challenge that along the way. Um, well, I'm curious to know, were you approached by other bands before getting involved with you too I, I know you had dabbled with a few other um graphic graphic jobs but was w- would you have said yes to whatever was coming your way or were you particularly interested in working with with what you were hearing and seeing yeah i probably was excited um i don't think there was a again you know after 30 40 years it's hard to exactly remember i remember i started working with other bands in and around that time um because i um did some work with the Blades around that time and then did their Last Man in Europe first album cover with them. Well, Virgin Prunes as well. Well, I worked very closely with the Virgin Prunes as well. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I was actually quite proud of the work I did with the Prunes um, mm. because um, they were a different, con- although they were friends of you 2 they were a sort mm. of different concept. And I think I may have done some work with them I did some work definitely with DC nine around that time as well. So, yeah. you know, there was, there, it started, it was starting to bubble up at that, at that time. I, I was excited because I thought Adam was a um, intelligent and understanding person. Uh, and, and in subsequent years, I learned that um, from other bands that I work with, they would listen very closely to what advice you gave them. And Adam would come back maybe a week later and say, we've talked about what you suggested and we think this and this and this works for us, but we're not sure about that. Whereas other other people either just totally ignored your advice or simply took it all on board without actually any real sure. call. They were, they, were, they were all the time thinking about where they needed to be and how it was going to work for them. So you had been visited by Adam, who at that point was living in Malahide and you were living in Port Marnock, is that, that right? That's correct, yeah. That's the house that you're parents my grandparents ultimately purchased your mother now lives in is that right that's correct yeah they live in yeah. adam's parents old house yeah and occasionally a little van pulls up and a bunch of you two tourists come out and take pictures yeah of the house. hasn't done hasn't happened for a long time but yeah. that's what happened yeah they did these this sort of van with you two tourists written on the side of it would pull up outside and people get out and take pictures and get in and drive off again one other interesting point just before we wrap up I remember you telling me in the past that in the early days you you had been considered for the role of you know or for for a managerial role um prior to to Paul's arrival on the scene um and I can understand why I guess you kind of had a bigger brother you know an experience that they didn't have and, um maybe it was for lack of someone else like Paul but can you can you kind of confirm that well it's true but it's kind of like 
in every band, there's somebody who doesn't quite make make the, the grade, and therefore they, people say, "Oh, you can be the band the band's manager or whatever," and, and do it that way. And I think that was a little bit of what was going on. I mean, Adam asked me, "Would I?" Would I? And I actually said, "Yeah, if I was managing, they'd probably still be playing the bag it in." So I said, "No, I, but I would." I did say that if they wanted a kind of consultant manager position, that would that would look after certain creative things, they would do that. But obviously, Paul came in, and Paul was well able to handle all the various aspects of it. And again, the point I made about a friend of the band being the manager and going into record companies with a kind of cap in hand, uh, I, you know, I saw Paul in action in, in Island Records and he, he, he had it at a level whereby they were slightly afraid of him. And if he asked for something to be done, they did it. But that's kind of what a manager needs to be in many ways. It needs to be tough. And, and, and Which you certainly were were not. So <laughs> that makes sense to me. I think your personality is that that of a person who likes to avoid conflict yeah. and, and yeah. not a person comfortable with, with leadership the way a manager needs to be. What also happens with a lot of bands is they kind of like don't do what the band manager says. Uh, they go against what he undermine them because if you, if you have a manager you can trust, he should be able to make decisions on your behalf when you're not there because um, you can't be there all the time if you're full, full-time musicians. I see Paul as being very unique in a way. He is kind of an archetype of a manager, um, he had an almost familial way of working with the band and the wider collaborators, yourself included, which is very intrinsic to the success of of you two and its survival as it as it grew so so large. Mm. Well, I, I, I kind of do want to say that you know, Paul was never anything but supportive of what I was doing. You know, I mean, when you consider that, you know, the band in the beginning really didn't have a great deal of money, but they still paid what was an expensive airfare for me to go to Island Records and deliver the artwork for Boy and and, and uh, to have meetings with, with Island Records. Now, as I said to you before, I found Island Records absolutely dismissive of me. They, and I know from what I heard afterwards, it was kind of like, why would you want to work with this kid from Dublin when, you know, we have one of the best art departments? And they did. They had a great art department. It's one of the best in-house art departments there's ever been. But I don't think they understood the band that well. And uh, I mean, if you actually think about it, and it's been, and, we, and you know, again, we're skipping slightly ahead. The October cover is the kind of cover you'd put on a debut album of a band where you show who the band are, whereas the the boy cover is much more abstract uh, and, to my mind, interesting for what the band were. And the fact that he stood behind those covers and made sure that they they, they were done is, is a very important part of, of what a band needs. So to bring this introductory episode to a close, I'd like to bring to attention the night that the hype became you two somewhat officially of course is the is noted in the history as the first use of the name but there was a gig in 1978 where you two appeared as both the hype and officially as you two for the first time which was also a show at which your avant-garde electronic band modern airs performed do you have any memories of that night it was a very interesting gig and very uh, important to the whole U2 situation. Uh, there was four bands on the bill. The opening band was The Hype, which was U2 uh, guys with um, Dick Evans playing second guitar. The second band on the bill was the, U- the Virgin Prunes making their debut performance on stage. Third band was The Modern Airs, which was uh, my band. Then U2 came back on as U2 for the, a four-piece band for the final set of the show. So um, it was in what was probably 
unusual about it and interesting about it was that Adam played bass with all four bands. Right. And there's some really cool photographs from that night too, with you uh, singing back to back with Edge and Edge and Adam. Yep. And I assume that was important to kind of break the ice with the band and and enhance the the, the brotherhood to a degree. So let's take us to a close with a question that I'll no doubt ask you a few times. But you had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, you you, you couldn't have had any, any sense of how big this would become, that this band would end up becoming the biggest band in the world. Well, it's quite funny, because I remember Adam one day leaving and saying to, to your mum, Maria, um, what's it like living with a rock star, you know? And I laughed, because now I could turn around and say to you know the same thing, give me advice, Adam, on how, what I need to do. But... That has been episode one of U2Y. We would like to send our love and gratitude for the support in the creation of this show to Nadine, Bono, Edge, Larry, Adam, and the team at Universal Music. We would like to dedicate this show to the memory of Dorothy Averill, who passed away since the recording of this episode. The next episode centers on U2's first long-playing release, Boy. You can follow Steve on Instagram, forward slash Stephen Averill Design, where you can find some scraps and items from his archive, as well as some more insight into the show. Or you can sign up for updates at stephenaverill.com, forward slash U2Y. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.